So I've entitled this sermon, Where is the Glory and What Does It Look Like? And first we're going to talk about misplaced expectations. We'll, we'll look at how expectations are misplaced in Scripture. Then we'll ask, where do we misplace our expectations of the Savior? And finally, we'll ask, where do we properly place those expectations? So it was Christmas Eve of 2004, and I was in seminary. And while I'm not, I'm sorry, I referred to Larry up there this morning. Um, uh, while I'm not as good as either of you, I, um, I had a seminary job playing the piano and sometimes even the organ for uh, a, a small Lutheran church near the seminary. And um, it was Christmas Eve. We had a service, oh, I don't know, maybe 4 o'clock and then another one at 7 or something. And we had a gap in between. And my wife showed up and she said, John... I have a surprise for you. Let's go to Starbucks. I'm like, yes, that's great. If you've gotten to know me, you've noticed that often I have an iced latte in my hand, and unless I had a chance to go to a, a local coffee shop, the default would be Starbucks. So this was great. Here it's Christmas Eve, and instead of being stuck at church, I get to sneak out with my wife and go to Starbucks and get my favorite drink, right? What a wonderful surprise. So I'm just happy and giddy and everything's wonderful. And we go to Starbucks and we get our drinks and we sit down at the table. And she says, okay, now I have a surprise for you. Wait, what? <laughs> I was perfectly happy with the gift of Starbucks. That met all of my immediate needs. And if we had gone back to church and had our Christmas Eve, I would have been completely happy. But my expectations were far too low. Catherine pulled out a card. And she said, here, I want you to read this. And I opened the card, and it said, congratulations, you're going to be a father. Now that's a Christmas present, isn't it? Here in the gospel lesson, the people have all of these amazing expectations, and Jesus hits the mark on many of the expectations, but they're too low. They're too small. They're expectations that would benefit one generation in one nationality and one ethnicity, and God has a greater plan in place. I wish it was part of God's plan that my microphone would stay in place. There we go. Um, Jesus hits all of these cues. He rides provocatively into Jerusalem as a king. He invokes all of these images of past kings being coronated. The, um, uh, Solomon rode into Jerusalem on his father's, father David's donkey when he was introduced as the next king. Palm branches had the same symbolism. So did spreading cloaks on the ground. The people might have recognized um, prophecy being fulfilled from Ezekiel chapter 43, where the glory has departed from Israel and the glory of the Lord returns, where? From the east, from the Mount of Olives, down and through the very gate that Jesus entered as he came into Jerusalem. 
They might have remembered Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the people pick up on the cues and they wave the palm branches, they spread their cloaks, they quote from Psalm 118, verse 6, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here's what they expect. They expect a glorious military victory over their Roman oppressors. They expect a glorious spiritual renaissance where the law of God and the scriptures that they have preserved will be enforced and followed in the land. And in both of these expectations, the key term is glory. And the problem is time and location. You see, God's plan was different than the people's expectation. And in many ways, on the surface, Jesus disappoints. For generations, they've been waiting for God to come and deliver for them a military victory and restore the glory of ancient Israel. And that's not what this week turns out to look like. In hindsight, we know that Jesus comes first to suffer and to die. Even the high priest at that time said it's better that one man would die for the people than that everyone would perish. And God's plan requires that Jesus die on behalf of the sins of the whole world. That he be raised from the dead in order that the greater victory, not just a military victory over Rome, but a victory over sin, death, and the devil that can benefit all the people in the world might take place. And with this plan in mind, the mission has just begun. So God's plan was different than the people's expectation. Jesus first has to come and suffer and die. And we're reminded then that glory comes through the suffering of Christ and suffering with Christ. We're reminded in Philippians chapter 2, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus' glory follows suffering and death on our behalf. And we're reminded in 1 Peter chapter 4, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. That you participate. That's, that's all of us. So that we may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is the part of God's story. I'm sorry, the part of God's story where Jesus is enthroned in heavenly glory doesn't come on Palm Sunday. It comes after suffering and death and resurrection where he then ascends into heaven. And the part of the story where he, where he comes back in glory to judge the living and the dead is still yet to come. We wait patiently for that day as 
we fulfill God's mission here on earth. So this is the background. This is where we're at in the story of God's salvation. And I might ask then, where do we in our lives today misplace our expectations of the Savior? One way that we do this is in religion. Whether it is a false religion or we are attempting to follow Jesus, it's very easy for us to put ourselves at the center. To do whatever religious activity we do in order to benefit ourselves. In Christianity, sometimes we mistakenly think that we can use God like a good luck charm. If I just hang on to Jesus, and if I just do the right things, and if I just say the right things, then it's going to work like luck or like superstition. And because I do the right things, fate will treat me well. And that's not how Christianity works, is it? Or we think that we can manipulate God into giving us what we want. If I pray my will instead of God's will, he has to do it. Right? Good. Thank you for not agreeing with me. <laughs> if I just give enough money, God has to bless me with whatever material goods I want, right? You remember when Jesus is tempted to jump from the pinnacle of the temple because the devil says... Scripture promises that God has to send his angels to catch you. What does Jesus do? Does he say, okay, I'm going to stand on the promises of Scripture and jump? He says, Scripture says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Sometimes we misplace our expectations of the Savior and we turn Christianity into something that we try to manipulate for our own benefit. Sometimes we misplace our expectations in this world's wealth. For about nine years after I graduated from undergrad, I had nine different permanent addresses. Nothing went wrong. I was just single and, and growing in my career and sometimes having setbacks and sometimes growing. And, you know, I'd live economically and move from place to place. So by the time I was through with that stage in my life and we were married and I was through seminary, guess what? I don't like to move. And I am very thankful to have a home that is stable, that I can come home to and know that I'm going to be there a while. And that's all well and good, but sometimes our trust can be misplaced in the wrong thing. And if having a stable, permanent home in this world is more important than looking toward our eternal home, then I have a misplaced expectation. Sometimes we misplace our expectations in worldly institutions. Perhaps we ask government and politics to do more than they're able to do. Of course, as Christians, we have a responsibility to be good citizens, to be engaged, to hold our governing officials responsible and to prayerfully be a part of the, civil, the civic process. But when we expect government to create, uh, to purge sin and create a holy society, we are asking too much of it. Only Jesus 
can take away sin. Only God can bring people to faith. And he's chosen not the government, but you and I, the church, God's forever family, to do exactly that. Education. Even family structures. Wonderful things. Gifts of God that if we lift up too highly, we misplace our expectations. So where do we properly place our expectations of the Messiah? I would like to offer a very simple framework for thinking about those expectations. In the historic liturgy of the church, in some communion liturgies, we recite a very ancient statement. We recite, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and you guys know this, don't you? Christ will come again. Repeat after me. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So in this simple liturgical statement that we have been making for years, we're reminded of the past, what God has already done for us. We're reminded of the present, and we're reminded of Advent, of our hope for his coming return. In remembering Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, we remember that he, he was incarnate and became flesh. God came to us, that he suffered on our behalf, that he died to take away our sins, that he was raised from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil. This is all historical fact. This is, these are ways that Jesus has acted in time, space, and history, and there is nothing we can do to undo the victory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. In the present because Christ has risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, he is able to be present with all of us. He is, he is present wherever two or three are gathered. He is present in the bread and the wine that we'll, re we'll receive in a few minutes. He is present in the waters of baptism, bringing Ashton into the family of God. He is present and hearing and responding to our prayer. He is present in our worship. God is with us. So in this this in-between time between Jesus' first coming and his second, we know that we are not alone, we are not abandoned. God doesn't say, good luck, I'll see you in 700 years or however long it is. He says, fear not, I am with you. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and that brings us to Advent. Christ will come again. Whatever temporal things allow us some measure of trust and some security, we always remember that our true hope, our true promise, and our true home is in heaven. We always remember that as we journey through this life on God's mission today, we are building up treasures in heaven. And today, we are blessed to be part of Ashton's baptism where God brings one more saint into his kingdom and we're blessed to come to God's table where together we acknowledge that in the midst of this life we get a glimpse of eternity. God in this holy meal connects us with eternity and together we'll say in a few minutes, come Lord Jesus. Holy communion is a meal not only of forgiveness of sins but of holy expectation 
that the living Lord who is present today will fulfill his promises and he will return. So today, let's focus our expectations on these truths. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks. We thank you for being with us for giving us your word, for washing us in the waters of baptism, for sustaining us in the faith and continually feeding us with the hope of everlasting life. Help us remember as we go throughout our week that our expectations and our hope lie in you. Christ is risen. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And you, Lord Jesus Christ, will come again. Amen.